This episode is brought to you by Wise, the account that helps you manage your money all around the world. I lived overseas for many years, and one of the biggest bottlenecks to international living is money transfers. You want to withdraw money from an ATM to access funds from your American bank account, and you don't realize you're getting hit with a $10 charge every single time you do that. Yeah, that did happen to me. So if you're dining in dollars or want to do business in bot, what a Wise account does is let you send, spend, and receive money in different currencies. Wise is the easiest way to connect all of your finances internationally. This goes from a night out at a tapas bar in Spain to buying a property in the Yucatan. So if you're a digital nomad in Bali or want to send money back to mom, it's simple. And this is all without hidden fees or exchange rate markups. Wise works in over 160 countries, so your money's always at your fingertips. And over half of the transfers get their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this app. Join 16 million customers and learn how a Wise account can work for you by downloading the app or visiting wise.com unplugged. That's wise.com unplugged. One more time, wise.com unplugged. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. History isn't just a bunch of names and dates and facts. It's the collection of all the stories throughout human history that explain how and why we got here. Welcome to the History Unplugged podcast, where we look at the forgotten, neglected, strange, and even counterfactual stories that made our world what it is. I'm your host, Scott Rank. Our story begins in 1899, when two archaeologists, Arthur Hunt and Bernard Grenfell, were on an expedition in northern Egypt in an ancient town once known as Tebtunis on a search for mummies and other ancient artifacts. This was during a time of growing Western fascination with ancient Egypt that was later dubbed Egyptomania and reached a fever pitch with the discovery of King Tutankhamun's tomb in the 1920s. Researchers hunted for all things Egyptian, especially human mummies, partly because they represented the Western obsession with bringing the dead back to life. While the team were excavating the town cemeteries, they did find human mummies, but they also found something unexpected, and that was crocodile mummies. Well, instead of being thrilled at this discovery, the archaeologists saw these reptiles as getting in the way of what they really wanted to find. But a new generation of Egyptologists have a different view about these crocodile mummies. They see them as a means of understanding Egyptians' views of fear, strength, pleasing their gods, and even death. Joining the show today to discuss these curiosities are Rita Lucarelli, professor of Egyptology and the faculty curator of Egyptology at the Phoebe A. Hearst Museum of Anthropology, and Andrew Hogan, a postdoctoral fellow at the Center for the Tatunus Papyri at the Bancroft Library. We discuss all the ways that the most unlikely of items can connect us to the ancient past and understand our predecessors, what Egyptians' mummification of crocodiles tells us about the culture's response to death, and how ancient and modern cultures try to curry favor with the gods or any other powerful force in various ways. I hope you enjoyed this discussion about an unlikely type of mummification. Andrew and Rita, welcome to the show. Thanks. Hi, Scott. Thank you. Well, you two are the first Egyptologists I've had on the show, so this will be a lot of fun. And archaeology is, I think it's a fascinating field for a lot of people, just the way that you're trying to recreate the past and through materials that most people don't think of when they think of history. And I've been fascinated when I've spoken with archaeologist friends before particularly since they're using items that aren't texts. And our topic of discussion has to do with mummies, not human remains, but crocodile mummies and the writings found within, which I had no clue were a thing whatsoever. There are many things I don't know about, and this is one of them. So 
Let's begin with our crocodile mummies in question. These were discovered by archaeologists in 1899. So could you two tell me the story of how they were discovered? And at the time, what were the reactions of these archaeologists and how have the reactions to them changed over time? Absolutely. You don't mind me jumping in, Scott. I'll I'll take this one. So uh, just by way of a a little background. So I am sort of coming at this from the position of the papyri. So if if I sort of default to talking about the the papyri rather than the mummies, you'll see why I I get to that point just because it's the sort of the ends that were justifying the excavation. And so the Tebtunus papyri and the mummies that contained many of them were excavated, as you said, in the winter of that 1899-1900 season at the Greco-Roman site of Teptunus, and which is in the uh, the Fayum region of Egypt. And the expedition uh, to Teptunus was led by the British papyrologists uh, Bernard Grenfell and Arthur Hunt, and was financed by the University of California by Phoebe Apperson Hurst. Grenfell and Hunt were famous or notorious, depending on who you ask nowadays, for being known as excavators who could find papyri. They had earned and sort of sealed this reputation at the town of Oxyrhynchus, uh, both before and after this expedition. And those finds furnished the vast majority of the collection at Oxford University. And so Renfell and Hunt, they went to the site of Neptunus, and their first objective was to survey the town itself. And so in a few weeks, they explored uh, the town and the temple complex of what would turn out to be the crocodile god, Sobek, lord of Teptunus or Sok Neptunus. And in both locations, in the town and the temple, they found a just huge number of papyri. And then in early January of 1900, Renfell and Hunt moved to this huge necropolis in the desert south of the city of Peptunus. And this is where they were looking for human mummies. And it had been learned a few uh, years earlier by another archaeologist, Flinders Petrie, that often papyrus texts were used almost as paper mache in mummy wrappings around human mummies. And so uh, the technical term for this is cartonage. And so what they were doing is they were really looking for human mummies. And then, you know, right around the kind of January, mid-January, late January of, of 1900, they discovered the cemetery of mummified crocodiles that were on the edge of the human necropolis. And at that time, crocodiles were considered to be just, you know, objects rather than any sort of, you know, you think about the grand things that people were looking for during the Victorian era. Obviously, mummies were important for humans, but crocodile mummies didn't carry the same sort of cultural weight at that time. And then there's a bit more to the story about when that opinion changed, but I, I think that answers your question. They, they sort of put it in stride, is the simple answer. What's your take on it, Rita? I know that you've researched this a lot, too. Yeah, no, uh, Andy explained it very well, and I would just add that it it really was a sort of obsession for papyri, um, and this says a lot about also Egyptology, papyrology. They um, they are disciplines really based on text. There was this this really huge desire to find new text to translate and to understand the all Egyptian culture through text, which is different from what we do now, because now we are um, super careful in any object or material culture that we find in Egypt, while at that time was a bit different, especially in those sites like the Tunis. Uh, actually, I'd like to take a step back and talk about the, the Western interest in Egypt and where it came from and what it says about these archaeologists that they kind of cast aside these crocodile mummies. But now researchers such as you two have come back to them. So the interest in Roman and Greek culture, at least in the West, never really died after the fall of Rome. At least texts on logic maintain their importance in medieval monasteries throughout the Middle Ages. With the Renaissance, the rebirth of literature of the Roman period and the Greek period grew. But when it comes to the civilizations of the Middle East, of those in the Bronze Age, of the Sumerians, the Hittites, uh, other groups, Akkadians, that's really much more of a 19th century affair. So these Near Eastern Studies departments, like at the University of Chicago, are really built up in the 19th and really much of the early 20th century, especially when people from Europe are coming over, many of them fleeing Nazis, and building up and establishing these departments. And as, as a little bit of popular culture, I was watching the series Boardwalk Empire, which is set in Atlantic City in the 1920s. And there's one episode where 
the elite of the city are gathered together and they're throwing an Egyptian themed party because there's Egyptomania with the discovery of the tomb of King Tutankhamun, which is the biggest sensation of a certain for a few months in the 1920s. And he celebrated as a great leader, even though 3D imagery have shown him as horribly inbred and sickly and just disgusting to look at. But um, where does this fascination and this Egyptomania come from in the 19th and 20th centuries when for centuries beforehand, these Middle Eastern and Near Eastern and African civilizations were really ignored to focus on Greece and Rome? Yeah, I can uh, jump on it uh, since I was talking about already obsession. And indeed, uh, Egyptomania is a term uh, that um, has also sort of negative connotations of a sort of unlogical obsession about ancient Egypt, which is not the historical Egypt, but it's more an imagined esoteric Egypt. And the term Egyptomania, indeed, was coined um, by Westerners to describe this phenomenon of fascination, obsession for ancient Egypt, initiated uh, with the Napoleon, uh, Napoleonic uh, Egyptian campaign in 1799. And the Greeks and the Romans, uh, so the classical civilizations representing the West, are generally considered the founders of Egyptomania, since already when uh, ancient Egypt was uh, a living civilizations, it was admired by Greek Latin authors uh, for the grandiosity of the monuments, uh, this fascination, uh, fascinating world of uh, hybrid gods, half animal, half human, those temples. Uh, so the Greek and Romans traveling, uh, being in Egypt, uh, also ruling Egypt. Uh, they were highly fascinated about Egypt uh, and they were writing about the, the Egyptian civilization. Um, these aspects of the Egyptian civilization, the religion, the grandiosity of monuments, the temples, are still the main objects, I would say, of the Western Egyptomania. We should also remember that Egyptomania is, however, a phenomenon also applying to non-Western countries. But it has been codified better, let's say, from by the West uh, in certain forms. So starting from antiquity with the Greeks, the Romans, and then in the Renaissance, Egypt, uh, because of the humanist uh, interest uh, in ancient civilization, Egypt then was seen through the image given by the classical authors. And it was seen also, this is interesting, I think, was seen as a sort of classical heritage of Europe. So Egypt beca became Western. And this was also a way to justify why this Egyptian civilization compared to other African Middle Eastern civilization was so advanced. Because according to the opinion of the time, the Western civilization was the, the most advanced civilizations. Of course, we don't agree with that anymore. But certainly also, I would say that the fascination for hieroglyphs played a big role too. So the Egyptian text written with all these pictures, cute pictures of animals, uh, human figures, objects uh, that made the language, they were seen as very esoteric one, almost untranslatable. Or when there were attempts to translate them, the, the result were very esoteric translations that will not think that instead we even had phonetic value in this writing, right? We have a, a real language and an alphabet. And so then in 18, 1822, with Champollion, the, the of the hieroglyphs, and so what we call the birth of Egyptology, this sort of imaginary dialogue with uh, an esoteric Egypt, kind of handed, uh, but Egyptomania stay popular. It's still there and uh, can be seen in the Egy Egyptianizing architecture from Victorian London to our uh, uh, days. Uh, Egyptianizing uh, jewelry, fashion, uh, elements of ancient Egypt in pop culture, music, uh, not to speak about the cinema. And it's always about monuments, gods, pharaohs, uh, and a sort of still mysterious, esoteric world. And so I think this is the main character of Egyptomania, is about this imagined esoteric Egypt that is still there, even now that 
Egyptologists have been deciphering the text. Uh, they've been translating the documents and uh, progressed a lot in their archaeological discoveries. So we, we know much more about the history, the real history of Egypt. Now, um, I, I'm going to mix uh, some high culture with low culture, and I'll get back to your research here. You mentioned uh, Egypt and popular culture, and I have to preface this question by mentioning I had a Dante scholar on the show who translated the Divine Comedy and asked him about Dan Brown's Inferno, had a scholar of Arthurian legend and asked him about the recent King Arthur one directed by Guy Ritchie. Have the two of you seen uh, the Gerard Butler movie Gods of Egypt? Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I yeah. Did how, how do you rate it as an Egyptologist? Were you just, were your hands just buried or your, was your yes. face buried in your hands? Okay. Yes. So. And on the face, really, I didn't watch it, but I had a lot of resume of the movie from my students, undergraduate students who very often try to use excerpts from, from this movie when uh, presenting on ancient Egyptian gods and i keep saying no no don't do that i don't know andy what is your experience but well i don't think i've ever actually sat through the entire film it's just the sort of thing that you flip onto on hbo when it's on every once in a while and and kind of then remember why you haven't stayed on it and lingered the entire time <laughs> i uh I, I try to give a bit of forgiveness to kind of the use of, of you know ancient literature in, in cinema kind of owned by an undergraduate professor who, in the wake of the release of Troy, was just like, oh, no, it was a reinterpretation. That's exactly what they'd want. And I just, I, I couldn't get behind that interpretation of this film. You know, I, I, that was my hunch. I was about 99% sure. The reason I asked is uh, a few years ago, there were, was a movie came out called Dracula Untold. It's sort of, you take the story of Vlad Dracul and his campaign against Mehmet the Conqueror, told through the prism of an X-Men movie. But it was surprisingly historically accurate in the Ottoman costume and the language and the political alliances. So I, I have been surprised, but this is kind of what I expected. So I just wanted to confirm that. But getting back to the question at hand. So I'd really love to get into the the symbology of the mummification of crocodiles. We have touched on this, but I mean, there's a, a wealth to unpack here. Because to somebody who's not a researcher in this field who doesn't know about Egyptology, it seems strange at first, but contextualizing it. So it would make sense to a person at that place and time. That's what I would love to dive into. So approximately what era do these date to? And what would this mean to an Egyptian at this time to mummify a crocodile? A lot to unpack there, but I would I would love to do so. Yeah, crocodiles were very important anyway in the Egyptian culture since they were part of the landscape of the Nile, of the river. And they were especially together with uh, many other sacred animals. They were mummified starting from the first millennium BC, more or less until the fourth century AD, so until the Roman period. Why they were mummified? Because they were indeed manifestation of sacred gods, of divine powers. And many of these mummies, though, they, they were votive offerings to gods and goddesses of ancient Egypt. And the, the crocodile was, why we found so many crocodiles mummies is because the crocodile was a manifestation of very of many powerful gods in crocodile forms. And maybe I can mention just the, the most popular of all, who is also connected to the site of Tepunis, and that's Sobek. Sobek, the crocodile god, uh, is described already in the third millennium BC, in uh, the oldest collection of magical texts we have from ancient Egypt, the pyramid text, and the epithets given to these gods are to these gods are really interesting. Uh, they, they really give us a lively uh, visual of this god because it's called, for instance, green of feathers or uh, alert looking. Uh, broad-chested, sparkling, um, coming out from the legs and the tail of the Great One, which is the solar god, and indeed is connected to solar gods like Horus and Ra, is the one who is in splendor. So a very, very powerful god who could attack also very quickly as an animal. So this is also why he was... uh, uh, feared a lot because of the physical strength and how quick he was. So we also have uh, epithet uh, uh, names of these gods in this magical text, like pointed or thief or 
who is standing still on his paws. And also uh, another aspect of the crocodile that is then associated to the goddess, the fact that he was very avid. He had a very avid nature. nature. He was a rapacious god and animal. And so we have descriptions like the one who, who loves robbing, of the one who lives on robbery, and there's a symbol of fertility when he's called the Lord of, of the Semen or the, um, the one um, who impregnates females. Even I found another name that is very interesting, who eats also while he has sex. And this shows really this aspect of fertility of this, of the god Sobek. That, so the aspect of each god always reflects what the animal does in nature. Um, so very important God, and therefore those crocodiles' mummies were important as offerings to the god Sobek as well. So we have really historical uh, documentation, also archaeological documentation in the Fayum, where it is clear that pre- the priests of Sobek also were having the special parts of the temples where the crocodiles could live and have babies, and there was a sort of crocodile nursery in some temples, we have especially an Italian Egyptologist who excavated a lot in the Fayum, um, Bresciani, Edda Bresciani, who wrote a really interesting uh, excavation reports on on those crocodile baby nurseries that we find in these temples. Yeah, I wonder. So these crocodiles that are mummified, do they come out of these nurseries? Are they set apart as that? rather than something that's coming out of a, the Nile or a tributary of the Nile somewhere in Egypt? Yeah, th- there are a lot of studies on that. It seems like both. Some were hunted. They, they were hunted. So there was crocodile hunting to, to get those crocodile in the temples. But then, like the eggs, uh, the hatchery of the crocodiles was used for the for mummy, for votive offerings, so for... Uh, those crocodile mummies used as votive offerings. At least this is what we see from the archaeological evidence. Uh, as an aside for the two of you, when you're uncovering archaeological evidence and putting forth theories about what these different things represent, when I've talked with archaeologists, I'm just amazed at the ingenuity that comes with deciphering these different things. Uh, it probably sounds commonplace to you, but when I was talking to a friend who looked at Assyria in the 7th century BC and looking at the population collapse there, almost all of his material remains were based on human teeth. So just by sight, he could say, okay, he doesn't, that tooth doesn't have its ridges anymore. So this person was probably in their 30s, their diet was poor, and he would drill into thousands of teeth and be able to exude all the state of what was their diet paired with other climate data saying, okay, there's a good reason to assume that because of this crop harvest, this triggered this destruction and this downfall. What sort of tools and techniques do you use to radioactive carbon dating? I have no idea. So how do you take a a specimen? And and I guess, Andrew, yours is more textually based. But for the two of you, how do you go about your work? I'm really fascinated. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, uh, I, I, Andy, we both actually work directly on the text <laughs> more than on the mummies. But what uh, uh, the way they are... Um, treated those mummies in, in, of crocodiles and other animals in museums by colleagues of our, for instance, especially uh, Salima Ikram is an important name for the study of animal mummies. Today, thanks to the technologies, they can be really scanned and so that the mummy stays intact and you can see exactly also what it contains. For instance, if it has the actuary in it, we don't, of course, open up the mummies anymore just to find text. So the the same technologies that is used uh, for human mummies is, is now used also for animal mummies. So we have uh, uh, medical CT scans, all kind of techniques, uh, very advanced techniques that really show you there are, uh, there are indeed a lot of studies, articles where you can see this amazingly detailed scans, CT scans of uh, crocodile mummies. And then, of course, there is the whole conservation uh, process uh, that is needed uh, to keep these mummies intact in museums. Uh, and so we have uh, some at the Hearst Museum. They, they have to be in a specific environment where 
they, they are not damaged by air conditions or um, other kind of factors that could affect the remains, the animal remains. I don't know mm -hmm. if uh, Andy wants to add anything to, to this. Yeah, I uh, just sort of, as Rita said, uh, I, I don't work in the field either. I work more on texts. The crocodiles, one of the things that text does allow us to do, do allow us to do, is that with the use of these texts as paper mache covering, it provides us a point before which we know that they were mummified. So we have a terminus uh, antiquem that we can work off of when dating things that it, when used in conjunction with things like the radio dating that Rita mentioned are really all we had up until sort of more modern advances that allowed us to work on these things. Just as sort of a, a supplemental note to what Rita mentioned, a few years ago, there was a team out of Palo Alto that actually came in and did CT scans of the few papyri or the few mum up crocodile mummies that we have in the Hearst Museum. And it revealed a number of things about the types and volume of objects that were still conserved within those wrapped mummies. And just echo once again what Rita said, I think it's very important nowadays to acknowledge that we don't need to unwrap things to study them in the same intrusive way that they just and during the Victorian period. It's you, you think about other things like uh, on digital unrolling of carbonized scrolls, like it's being done with those from uh, Pompeii and Herculaneum from the team in Kentucky. And there are a couple of teams in Italy that are working on this as well. It's really amazing how much things have changed in the last you know, 10, 15 years, even much, much less the last hundred. Hey everyone, Scott here. We're going to take a very short break for a word from our sponsors. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Right. I think the a writing of Archimedes that was found in a palimpsest from a monastery writing from the 10th or 11th century. It's just amazing. So these writings that were for the paper mache of these crocodiles, I mean, this is so I really don't know anything about Egyptian writing. I mean, what language are these written in? What time period do these date back to? And are these uh, the same sort of corpus of writings or are they all sorts of different things? Yeah. What are they? That's a big question. So there are several components to your answer. Uh, very broadly speaking, these texts that come from the crocodiles themselves date the Greek and Roman period of Egyptian hmm. That is to say, after Alexander the Great, when a number of cultures that were not sort of uh, normally Egyptian were coming in from outside. 
not to say that people hadn't been coming into Egypt. Most of the texts that were written that were contained in the crocodile mummies themselves are written in Greek. And so, you know, largely speaking, papyrology as a field sort of divides texts up into literary texts and documentary. And so most of the documents that were found in the crocodiles themselves were specifically documented. And so uh, what you're getting in these texts is just it's the sort of history that you can only do when you have sort of these firsthand documents that are used in daily life. And so you think about one set of texts, we have our texts coming from the offices of village scribes. And so you think about, you know, your kind of local, you know, notary's office or something like that. It seems that what happened is that often the paper collectors would come through and they just sell everything that was no longer needed to be stored. And so largely speaking, you're, you're getting the sort of texts like this archive of a very famous figure for us in Tabunis, uh, the village scribe, the Homo Grammateos Menkis from the village of Cyrus. And so we have sort of, you know, kind of the end of the second century BC, all of these papers dated from this little office dealt with tax records and land registers, which are very much, you know, one in the same story in many cases. And so, you know, we have this really dense set of records from about 120 to 110 BC with Menkes, who Arthur Verhoeft worked on in the early 90s, but also, you know, there's much work to still be done on this archive. Uh, Menkes is really interesting, just as sort of a side note, because, because we have so many of his papers, he's taken as this sort of like really scribe par excellence. And so, you know, you think about, you know, these 30 mummies or so where the texts are coming out. They are then sort of taken and sort of understood as a body and then extrapolated for all of Egyptian history and the functioning of the bureaucracy during not only the Ptolemaic period, but then on the Roman period. And they're used almost as a foil for people to jump off of and see how things change as time goes on. And then you get more than just sort of the local, you know, village scribe. You get ancient village officials. So you have people like the overseer and the tax collectors. And then you have texts coming from, you know, kind of the office of the police chiefs of this area. And so you have petitions that are coming in. And then some of the more fun texts are actually this sort of, they're crocodile texts, but they weren't used as paper mache wrapping in the text themselves. We have these 45 Greek documents that are mostly sort of, you know, private ones that come from the first half of the, uh, the first century. And so they're either coming from the crocodile mummies or because of the way that the notation was made, they might have been coming from the crocodile necropolis as well. So they think that it was sort of one composite group of texts. And so you also get bilingual papyri that all deal with the, the sort of affairs of the priests of Sobek. And so, you know, you get this other group of amazing demotic texts is uh, just, you know, by way of footnoting, demotic is the common language that was spoken and the name for the writing system in Egypt during this phase of Egyptian history. You get these really amazing demotic texts that have these annual rules for the fraternity of priests. And so, you know, the, the, the crocodiles are amazing, but not just from them, but also from the town and the temple complex. It all sorts of amazing documentary and literary texts like Hesiod and Demosthenes and Euripides and Homer, biblical fragments, uh, and a text that I, I, I'm going to talk about in a bit, the Dictus Pretensis, which is another amazing, at the moment, it's a hapax in uh, the literary record. So, you know, there's all sorts of different types of documentary papyri that come out of these things. Yeah, and I read an article recently that talked about Alexandria in Egypt. One of the first great textual projects was reconstructing the Iliad, which was began to be written in 5th century BC, but there were variant texts, so they were trying to put together sort of a critical edition in the Alexandrian period, so I was really interested in that. So I'd like to hear about things that came out that surprised the two of you. I know that the two of you work on uh, different text areas, but what you said in the beginning, Andrew, where a lot of it has to do with land registry or taxes. Now, for a listener who hears that, they might think, well, that sounds like IRS tax code. According to Section 2B, pursuant to Subsection 6A, and very, very boring, but I've been surprised at when I looked at, say, legal records of the Ottoman Empire, some of it is very arcane, but other times it's like I'm watching Judge Judy or Jerry Springer, where somebody says, two witnesses came, two of people came, and one said, let us lay together on the bed and appear to God like two cucumbers from heaven. Is this blasphemy and shall it be declared divorce? Yes, it shall be. So just 
Like, is this nasty joke? Does this trigger an Islamic divorce according to Sharia law? So there's just funny little things that creep in there that show a human side that I was very surprised by. Were there any things like that that crop up as you're looking to these ancient writings that you think, okay, I mean, I'm, I'm looking at ancient Egypt much differently than I expected. I could talk about that for hours. Rita, do you have any that you'd like to sort of Oh, no, please. No, no, as you know, I mean, I work mostly on religious texts, uh, uh, which are not found uh, in the crocodiles, but Andy can say much more about those. Instead. Yeah. So, you know, just sort of, you know, kind of a side note, Scott, are you going to come back to the question about non-elites? Uh, so, because you, you, uh, you can lump that in. Sure. Okay. So I'm going to ramble for, for a bit, <laughs> if you don't mind. So, you know, I'm an ancient historian. And so when I think about kind of talking about drawing out interesting things from rather mundane texts, I kind of point to this trend that's gone on in history over the last century or so, as more and more sources are becoming available. Historians that document more of a daily life of folks in the regions that were until relatively recently unknown to us, you know, thanks to the efforts of places like Center where I work here. So, you know, ever since Max Weber, People are working and sort of acknowledging the importance of social history and theory to history. And that is to say that, you know, people and their interactions should matter and they do matter. And so in general, historians have to not just focus on these big accounts that are preserved in the manuscript tradition, like Libius and Herodotus and Livy and so on and so forth. And they have to supplement these things with material texts like, like Irie or epigraphic texts or coins or archaeological findings. And so this often is really nuances and sometimes contradicts these grand narratives that we've had as the only story that you find in these things. And so getting back to your question, think about this. What could somebody write about you if they found all of the most important papers from your life? Marriage contracts, wills, you know, property documents, you know, especially like transfers and large-scale sales, your whole receipt drawer, right? your favorite books, all of these things that you keep kind of in one place because they're paper. And then imagine if it's not just you and it's many people from the same time and all of a sudden you get a pattern and talk about daily life. And so we have that capability more since we have the papers of local officials like the Menkes uh, papers that I mentioned earlier. And so, you know, it, it's thinking about how like, you know, a village can, where you're storing contracts and you're storing important papers and why, and sort of really teasing out all of those assumptions and patterns and, and sort of really drilling down on what was important and what these documents say. So, you know, it, it's easy, as you say, to talk about, you know, the IRS tax code. But when you're looking at a state that in terms of ancient states was really big compared to, say, you know, a city state being a, a norm that you might take as an administrative unit, for instance, in Athens, when they get into the Athenian Empire, we find that the rules start to get really complicated as they branch out and are holding more things. Same thing with Egypt, where we're seeing local adaptation and we're seeing all sorts of different things that really give a much more nuanced and broad view than sort of, as has been caricatured, sort of great man narrative of history, where we're not just talking about Ptolemy fighting the Seleucids, we're talking about the 99%, which I think is really interesting. And so expanding a bit more on the interesting things. I'm actually in the center today, thank goodness. I uh, My essential personnel status was just changed on Tuesday. So I've pulled a few documents that I thought you might want to see, and we can maybe, you know, put it as a link or something to the readers. I've pulled some of what we find are the often most cited pieces or what, you know, most famous, uh, for lack of a better term, that we have in the center. Now, I mentioned that we have sort of a split between literary and documentary papyri. I think that when we talk to UC Berkeley undergraduates or graduate students, I think it's the literary texts with the famous names that steal the show. And so I'll hold up for you, but I will also talk a bit about is we have here in my hand, PTABD 692. This you might be able to see forms the top portion of a oral from a human money, along with the foot that would have been actually cut out and placed, uh, pasted onto the bottom of the mummy. This is the only fragment that we have from one of Sophocles' lost plays, which was known as the Enochus. And so, you know, it's just horribly important for the textual notions that it contains, but also really interesting when you think about the fact that this has an incredible record as an object 
that was reused as mummy cartonnage that it's still visible and it doesn't show up on the page when you're looking at a paprological publication just how well cut out it was for the foot and why we have more letters in one line than we have on the one below it because it dips in for the arch of the foot a bit hmm. um another one that we have that's quite notable is uh, let me see if i can dig it out it's a little bit large so just give me a moment so this text right here as i angle it so you can see it hopefully is ptep 268 by way of a, just a small bit of background in the ancient world during the Roman period, there was a rendition of the Iliad written from a soldier's perspective known as the Ephemeris Belli Troiani, which was recorded by an author, a certain Dictus of Crete. Uh, proving, and so what we get is that until our text was discovered, it was believed that it was just a rumor that there was an, a Greek original and it only preserved, was preserved in Latin fragments. And so this proves uh, to a bit of the textual history that there was a Greek original and that this text was in wide circulation, making it all the way to Egypt. And I hope I'm not boring you just by reading things in succession. I pulled some of our, our favorite pieces here. So I hope you can see this. It's, it's highly fragmentary. This is Pete 679, a fragmentary page from the earliest example from a, a genre of medical manuals known as herbals. Think about like a botanical book, but with, you know, medical information as well. So this text is about this incredible plant. I, I looked it up this morning to confirm it's known as Greek whorehound. So, you know, I don't know if they'll be making candy from it, but it's known as pseudodictamnon. So it's not just important for, you know, like the artistic qualities that you'll see from the sketches done in red and in black ink, but it's also really amazing to think about how the excavations at Tunis went on not just after Grenfell and Hunt's excavations, but we have pieces of this text in Oxford and then and from later excavations showing up in Florence. And we have really great thanks to offer to the work of Anne Hansen and Kim Reihold, who showed that this Greek illustrated herbal came specifically from the Egyptian library at Teptunis. And if you'll allow me just to go on with a couple more texts, this one will look familiar to Rita from recently. So this is a magical amulet from Teptunis. This is yeah. Ptept 275. And it was written with this subscription on the bottom here toward away uh, technically fevers. There was a talk I recently heard by a former postdoc from the center who made a convincing case that it was probably malaria, that it was warding away of the evil spirits uh, or of a certain tice. And in it, she addresses a certain cook, cook, pool, who may be a demon, may not be. The amulet is actually really impressive. I don't know how well you can see it, but it formed sort of an inverted pyramid here with uh, largely nonsensical uh, letter groupings. And what happens is they take off the first and the last letter as each line goes further and further down. And so you have this notion of private magical uh, powers that are going on. And so it, it's a fascinating thing. And if you look at some of the Fayum portraits, you can actually see how people would have sort of folded this up and worn them around their neck on a daily basis to ward things away. There's another text, which is a bit ungainly. I won't show you since I've been talking for so long. From the archive of Menkes, we have a text on Kitab 5. It is a seven-piece land or a register that records different decrees that occurred under Ptolemy the Eighth in 118 BC, after a very long period of civil unrest, and records how several taxes were remitted and uh, other various offenses were explicitly written in great detail. How folks would have been basically brought back into the fold after a period of relative uh, civil strife and uncertainty, and it's really important because you can get down to the granular level of different types of shekel-based taxes. Obviously, shekels weren't used, but as a, by way of saying that it was a very small unit of account in some of these taxes, I find it to be the one that I'm always bringing to the talks when I want to show people the, the, the favorite things in the collection. But I think it's just incredible to think about how we have so many things recorded in one unit. So, All right. Well, yeah, thank you. That was a huge overview. So, Rita, I'd like to hear just what your research is when you've looked at specific religious texts. There's so many ways to approach this, but I think coming back to what we were discussing in the beginning, part of this 
Egyptomania, I think, was a fixation of ancient Egypt and its relationship to death with pyramids and its large structures that commemorated pharaohs, the things that the way Westerners thought they were trying to bring things with them into the afterlife and their understanding of death. Fascinating people, and it probably understood it erroneously. I mean, as an entry point from your research, what are things that, how would you describe Egyptian cultures that its relationship to death, what to, what is misunderstood about that? And how would you explain it differently? Hey everyone, Scott here. One more brief word from our sponsors. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Yeah, so I don't think uh, uh, the conception of death in ancient Egypt has been, generally speaking, misunderstood because it's true that they believed that after death on earth, there was another life waiting for the dead. So death was not an end, but a new beginning. And this is why they were so careful in building, preparing their funerary monuments, their funerary equipment, all the objects they brought with them in the tomb. What is misunderstood, I think, is that in many textbooks, especially also school textbooks, for instance, uh, you, you still see this, this approach to ancient Egypt as a culture that only cared about death, like a death culture. While uh, also from what Andy just said, this plane with all those papyri found in very late Egypt, in Greco-Roman Egypt, but you, you can find similar documents also earlier in Pharaonic Egypt, the Egyptians were in love with the, with their life on earth. And um, the, um, the misunderstanding comes only from the fact that the monuments for their life after death were built in stone and they've been preserved. And we found all those hum- mummified human remains, tombs, many already, many of these tombs are have been looted in antiquity already, but we even found a few intact tombs. So we have this idea of how they amassed all these treasures in the tombs, while we did not find much about their uh, daily life, unless you really go and look into these documents written in those cursive variants of hieroglyphs. And those are documents which are not so spectacular and beautiful, like the objects made for the afterlife. And so even speaking about papyri, we even we make jokes between Egyptologists like me who work on those beautifully illustrated 
Book of the Dead Papyri. And then papyrologists like Andy who look at documents, which are not really great to, to look at, and then they are very fragmentary. But from the historical point of view, they're really important because at least they give us a complementary view on how the Egyptians were active in their daily life on earth. So it's not a culture, the ancient Egyptian ones, which only, which was obsessed with death as it is always presented. Uh, on the other end, it is true that the, the kind of Im- imagery that they developed around the idea of a netherworld, it's really astonishing. And so when you enter these uh, tombs, especially the royal tombs, the famous one in the Valley of the King, of the famous pharaohs, of the, the Ramses, the, the, the famous Ramses, the, the second, that period, then you, you look at this representation of the netherworld as a, a region um, that is uh, divided in different kind of uh, spaces guarded by demonic guardians, uh, which the diseases to go through for the sun god, go through in his boat. And there are all these uh, enigmatic figures of gods uniting with each other, uh, different kind of forms, uh, text. Then you, you're, you're really amazed and you think, okay, where well, they believe in all that for uh, really, they, they were, they were convinced that you need all this sort of knowledge of what was happening in the netherworld in order to be assimilated to the gods and so reach eternal life. And which was first, it seems more a prerogative of the king in the third millennium. So only the pyramids were decorated with this kind of magical text. But later on, we find also the non-royal individuals who can afford this this kind of decorated tombs, coffins, and so on. But again, talking about elite, non-elite, as we've been mentioning before, our view of uh, the conception of death uh, in ancient Egypt is mainly based on the sources of the elite. So even the non-royal individuals, they were still elite. And if lower classes of society, they could just not afford to, to have all these magical material and decorations of the tombs. So what shall we think? Shall we think that they did not believe in this netherworld? I don't think so, because then we have other kind of documentation about their religious practice, daily religious practice which show that actually they were also believing that they, they had the, the same religion. It was only about having a, a more or less deluxe success to the netherworld, let's say. Mm-hmm. And Yeah, and I don't know if Andy wants to add anything. Uh, he already presented a lot of very interesting material, speaking about, indeed, the daily life of the ancient Egyptians. No, no, I think you hit the nail on the head, Rita. Well, I appreciate the work you two are doing because looking at the lives of non-elites is very challenging. Really, if you get anywhere below the 19th century, just a period before mass literacy, before writings are left behind. And there's all sorts of methods different people use, whether examining material remains that a so-called commoner would have left behind or seeing texts in which they're described, but trying to scrub away some of the elite perceptions, whether they're court records or tax records or anything else of the kind. But as the History Channel has taught us many times, uh, the true elites of Egypt were aliens because there's no way that the pyramids could have placed there or there's no way they could have been built. There weren't barges or anything that brought these stones to the sites or I've had a few episodes on that debunking History Channel. Well, to tie in these things together, thank you for sharing all this. And we began with crocodile mummies, but I think what we saw is that what could seem alien to a non-specialist is really tied into concerns that are every bit as relevant to contemporary people as ancient people, which for crocodile mummies, it's part of a religious system of votive offerings to the gods, which isn't so different from religious practice across the ages of trying to curry favor with a higher power or even secular practices of curing favor in different ways, whether it's to a high-powered individual, or maybe someone's nebulous understanding of karma, whatever it might be. So I guess to close out some of these things, for the two of you and your research, as you've looked at these different areas, whether textual reconstruction of 
legal or social practices or religious practices of ancient Egypt? Are there things like that, that as you're talking to students or others, you say, this practice in ancient Egypt, I mean, it really links to this, to contemporary concerns that we have today. It's really not as alien as we might think it is just on first glance. So is there anything that sticks out to you in your fields as you've tried to communicate what you've done to others and non-specialists? Well, what I love in studying, um, especially in the, uh, the funerary culture of ancient Egypt, the belief in death after life and looking at um, religious magical practices like mummification, embalming, is that in the end, this desire to survive death is connected, I think, to an inner fear, human fear about death. And so it's a way to go against that fear, to neutralize it. And it's something that I think all kind of cultures, ancient and modern, try to do. And very often they do it through the religion. So this is also a very important function of religion that helps to neutralize certain fear of what is afterlife on earth. And so I, this is the way that makes me feel the Egyptian like closer, like modern, more modern than what, what they are, because in the end, we all have the, the same fear. Yeah. I, uh, you know, going from death to taxes. No, I, um, <laughs> I, 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 I do try to very use. Similar. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> what the taxes can bring to, <laughs> to death, psychological I, death. Exactly. <laughs> you know, I do try to when I position teaching these whether it's, you know, kind of drilling into one or kind of an overview of all of them, I do try to really hammer home the universality of kind of the shared human experiences. I've spoken elsewhere about how we have letters home from kids to parents going off to war and, you know, take care of my little sister, you know, that, that sort of thing. Uh, Mom, don't worry about me. I'm going to, I'm going to be fine. Uh, I'm just, it's just war. Don't worry about it. I think that part of what I, I was getting at when I was sort of positing everything is like, think about your papers. They're basically the same things with a few very culturally mediated practices. And I think that when you look at whether it's the private letters or the receipts or the books of account, one may not be as experienced with accounts as, you know, the, an average Egyptian overseer of an estate, but certainly it's not that different from you or I. And I think that is what I try to sort of push when examining the ancient world and then to sort of ask questions like, well, it's different here. Why is that? And so that's where I, I find the most sort of fun conversations that you can have with students or other scholars or, or even an interested party are. So that, that's, that's sort of my soapbox about looking at these texts and really sort of appreciating them for what they are as cultural artifacts that speak to this broader human thing we're all going. All right. Well, yeah, thank you. I mean, the two of you really helped bring this down to earth for non-specialists like myself and many of the listeners. And I'll link in the show notes of this episode to some of the papyri that Andrew was referencing and then also the research that the two of you have done. So, Andrew and Rita, thank you for joining us and being our first Egyptologists on the show. All right. That is all for today's episode. As a first order business, I need to thank the Knowlton's Rangers, and I'll explain what that is in a second. And they are Kristen Lee, Willie from New Jersey, Suma41, Sergeant Hooch, Wire Meets Wood Guitars, at WMWGuitars.com, Bill Ivey, Tom from Ohio, Salvador Sanchez, Dan Carlson from Linwood, Washington, Rob from Chicago, Nick Brooks, Michael Piccinetti, Michael from New York, Jeff Mitchell, owner of Mountain West Commercial Las Vegas, Josh Reddick, Jake Harrington, Josh from BFW Post 2285, David Santi, Chris C., and Baron Fraser. Now, if you'd like to support History Unplugged and help it grow, there are three easy ways to do so. First, subscribe to the show and leave a review on the podcast player of your choice. This helps other people discover the show. Second, join our Facebook group, and here you can discuss recent episodes with fellow listeners, mention what you'd like to see on the show in the future, and get way more out of the show, and just look for History Unplugged on Facebook. Third, become a member of the Knowlton's Rangers. The Knowlton's Rangers were an elite reconnaissance and espionage detachment of the Continental Army established by George Washington, but it's also the membership group of History Unplugged, and here you can really dive in way deeper with the show. 
You can check it out by going to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Unplugged. If you join at the Scout level, you get early access to new podcast episodes, and you get completely ad-free versions of the entire back catalog of more than 500 episodes. Plus, everything is neatly categorized, so if you want to listen to something about the Middle Ages and skip all the Civil War stuff or vice versa, you can easily find an old episode from three years ago that, if you're just looking on Apple Podcasts, would be buried in the feed. If you join at the Intelligence Officer level, you get all the same stuff, but access to a growing catalog of now more than 60 premium episodes that come out bi-weekly including a multi-part series on the life of Audie Murphy, the most decorated combat soldier in World War II, a series on French Foreign Legion fighters in World War I, one on Teddy Roosevelt's years in the Dakota Badlands, and a series on Nazi attempts to assassinate FDR Churchill and Stalin in 1943. Lastly, if you join the Spymaster level, you get all the same stuff as level 1 and 2, but you also get a shout-out to you and or your business at the end of each episode. You can choose a historical topic on absolutely anything, and I'll base an hour-long episode on it, Plus, you get a three-pack of hardcover books. So again, check it all out by going to patreon.com slash unplugged. Well, that's all for today's episode. Thank you so much for listening, and see you next time. This episode is brought to you by Calitrin. Text the word UNPLUGGED to 30605, and I'll send you a link to a wonderful product that can help you finally succeed in shedding that extra weight. I took Calitrin for several weeks last year, and I felt great in several ways. I felt stronger, my workouts felt easier, I slept better, I was noticeably trimmer, there was no downside. Text the word UNPLUGGED to 30605 right now to see this week's special offer on Calitrin. Calitrin contains collagen, the most abundant protein naturally occurring in the human body, which decreases as we age. Taking Calitrin promotes better sleep, more energy, less joint pain, and best of all, weight loss. Calitrin has an 86% success rate with their 90-day supply, and this week, take advantage of my special offer. Buy the 90-day supply and get an extra month free plus free shipping. Ordering is easy. Just text the word UNPLUGGED to 30605, and I'll send you a link to the special offer. Again, text UNPLUGGED to 30605.